Escapes, a podcast about the legacy of colonialism on land relations in the Portuguese-speaking world. I'm your host, Michelle Gowan, speaking to you from Nogajuana, on the traditional territory of the Mississauga Anishinaabe, known also as Peterborough, Ontario. Welcome to the podcast series, produced by the Lucifone Land Legacies Research Group, and brought to you with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. In today's episode, we share a conversation featuring Bernardo Almeida. Often people talk about formalization to provide tenure security, but they don't ask tenure security against whom or what is causing insecurity. Maeve Cryan. Imagine if you are a traditional leader and you're tasked with maintaining and promoting clan unity and peace and spiritual balance and long-term access to land for future generations. Well, then the boundaries that you might pay attention to look different. And Laura Gherkin. And this is what is then also creating a situation of mistrust, which is also, I think, not helpful for anybody, not for the investors and also not for the government, not for the local people. So this is a very complicated situation. Bernardo is an assistant professor at the Leiden University College and a researcher at the Van Vollenhoven Institute. Maeve is a researcher and development practitioner and the director of Tahan Consulting. And Laura is a sociologist and doctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies and the University of Duisburg-Essen. All three are early career scholars with academic and professional experience and expertise in contemporary land formalization projects. In this roundtable-style discussion, Bernardo, Maeve, and Laura speak with me about the topic of land formalization, contemplating the continuities and discontinuities, as well as the similarities and differences in the colonial experience, and considering its impact of contemporary land formalization projects and claim-making practices, including state, customary, private, and corporate claims, in the context of their research settings in Timor-Leste and Mozambique. Recorded virtually through Zoom, this conversation was inspired by themes that emerged during the 2021 Lucifone Land Legacy Symposium, centered on colonial-era legacies relating to land, labor, and livelihoods. In our discussion, we explore conceptions of land, as well as adjacent notions of boundaries, space, and place, and consider approaches to land relations, concluding with a discussion of questions that they've encountered in their own work involving issues relating to land. So, let's continue our journey together into Lucescapes with this discussion on land formalization. I'd like to begin by inviting each of you to introduce yourselves to our listeners and to share how it is that you came to work on topics relating to land issues and perhaps also speaking to how this work aligns with the broader topic of Lucifone land legacies in comparative perspective. So my name is Bernardo Almeida, and I'm a lawyer by training. I grew up in Portugal, and I grew up in a family of lawyers, and I was, in the beginning of my career, destined to be a lawyer in Portugal. And I went to Timor to teach at university. I was planning to go and one of the courses I was teaching was property law 
I was planning to go for four months and I ended up staying for close to six years. I was hired by Ministry of Justice to work on land issues there. I started working in this area. Later, I thought that my work experience in Timor would be a good opportunity or would be a good story to tell in a PhD thesis. So I started working with Leiden University on that. And I started in 2013, but still living in Timor. And then I also started to do consultancy. So that took me to other places, to other debates outside of Timor. And that's how I got to work on land issues and uh, where I am now. So my name is Maeve Kryan. I'm the director of a small organization called Tahan, which does research and policy work on land issues in Timor-Leste. Like Bernardo, I'm also a lawyer by training. And I traveled out to Timor originally in 2008. I was originally going for six months to do research on traditional justice mechanisms. And it immediately became really evident that land was kind of at the root of so many things in Timor. And so for me, one thing led to another. I met the Redibarai, which is the land rights network of Timor. Timor, which is a coalition of NGO and civil society actors working on land rights. And I worked with them for about five years and I've been in Timor ever since. So I recently completed my PhD at Australia National University and I'm now kind of back working in between the policy space and the academic space, trying to make space for both endeavours. I'm Laura Gatton, but to start after I finished high school, I did a volunteer year in Mozambique, and this is maybe how I started having my connection to Mozambique. Also, I am half German, half Portuguese, and I thought this would be a good opportunity to do a volunteer work and improve my Portuguese at the same time. So that's how I went to Mozambique. And then afterwards, I started studying sociology. And since this volunteer year, I also had a strong interest in global interrelations. And that's how I then followed up on issues such as fair trade, etc., on which I wrote my bachelor's thesis. And then for my master's, I chose a master's class that focused on rural development. And for my master's thesis, I did some field work in Ghana, which was on global value chains, but still during this fieldwork, it unfolded again how important the issue of land is. And this is something that was always kind of popping up. So once I started my PhD, which I'm currently doing, I was most interested in this land issue. And also as I was in Mozambique before, I followed some news and some cases of large investments in Mozambique. And this is where I drafted also my PhD project, which I'm about to hopefully write up this year. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you all. It's always so interesting to hear that commonality of research sort of being thrust upon you that's so emblematic of the nature of the work that we do in the social sciences. So before delving into a discussion on land formalization, it's important that we first establish what exactly land formalization is. And in order to consider this, I think we need to step back even further and talk about what land is. I wondered if you could each share how you conceptualize land in your work, or in other words, how you define land, so that we can perhaps then speak about how these definitions inform understandings of land formalization. I have such a lawyer view on that. Well, for me, I know this because I was very precise with all of my definitions and I just went through that chapter. So I more or less know 
what I wrote about it. For me, land is the ground and whatever is attached to it. And it's how I treat it. I, I think there are other probably much more poetic definitions, but for me is the definition that I work with. Let, let me just maybe one thing that gets confused sometimes or with my students, I have to make that difference is when we're talking about land or making a distinction between land and territory, which again, in my very lawyer definitions, territory is what states debate. They talk about their territory, they define their territory. And when I'm talking about land, I'm talking about land inside a state with all the issues of boundaries of, of state territory. So I can say this because myself and Bernardo are really good friends, but I take a really different approach to land, <laughs> despite also being a lawyer. Um, for me, I mean, I, in one sense, I agree with Bernardo. You know, there is a very obvious physical definition that the land is the ground. I think for me, I think that there is a lot of power operating behind the scenes when we talk about what is land and when we talk about what is property. And so in my work, I use assemblage thinking to kind of ask what is land and to look at how, depending on the assemblages that land is involved in, it can become different things. So if you're talking to a local community in a, in a customary part of Timor-Leste, land can be a spiritual entity, but it can also be a commodity wrapped up in a global international commodity chain as part of the market. So I see land as this kind of emergent changing thing. And that's part of what interests me about it is that the power and the processes that change land from one thing into another. And I might add the sociologist perspective to this as I think, especially my project now, I mean, in my project, land has a very specific value, at least when it comes to investments. So it's a commodity. And I use the understanding of Volani's um, approach of fictitious commodities in which land besides uh, labor and money is a commodity that is being exchanged on the market. But I mean, this has deeper impacts on how societies then restructure through making land a fictitious commodity, because I agree with you, it has different values looking from different perspectives on it. But once it comes to investments, I think land is really made a fictitious commodity in Polanyi's sense. Thank you all. And with these sort of varying conceptions of how land can be understood, I'm really interested to hear everyone's responses to the question, does land need to be formalized? And in responding, if you could speak to those socioeconomic, political, historical realities that might necessitate land formalization, or indeed whether you feel that it is necessary. And I imagine that discourses around economic development and modernity are very much centered on land formalization, so perhaps that might factor into your responses as well. And to add sort of another dimension to this question, if possible, I wondered if you could discuss how competing or conflicting concepts of ownership emerge when we're talking about land formalization, again, depending on how it is that we define land and how these might shed light on the varying perspectives of stakeholders involved in these contexts. To answer your question, I think I need 
to define first what do I think is land formalization. And, uh, and in my view, land formalization is when you bring land to a formal land tenure system and you make clear which land rights exist over a piece of land not necessarily through registration. I think there are other forms of formalizing land, but you clarify which rights exist over a piece of land. To your question, does land needs to be formalized? I think my answer is it depends. It depends a lot. I think in some cases, when you have land that is under a lot of competition, formalization can not always help if well done can help to prevent disputes to clarify the situation on the ground and uh, help people to have something your security but there are many other examples that formalization just caused more troubles and became more of a problem i think what and I would like to hear others about this. I think one big issue, and it's one issue that you don't hear it, you don't read it much in the literature, is often people talk about formalization to provide tenure security, but they don't ask tenure security against whom or what is causing insecurity. And I think in many ways, or in many situations, the states and governments are the ones causing the biggest insecurities. Of course, things can be more complex than that, but often the states are a big source of insecurity. If it's in Timor with evictions of entire communities to give land to, to someone else or to build some government projects, if it's in Mozambique to give it to some company, but the states play a big role in creating insecurity. So I think quite often the issue of insecurity should be ahead of the discussion about formalization and asking who is causing insecurity. And once you get to that question, Quite often the answer would be, well, instead of trying to clarify to the last detail of who has which land rights over each piece of land, maybe by taking some power from the state to take land from the people and disempowering the state and controlling more the power of the state to, to displace people, would be a very good alternative to formalization that often gets out of control. But I would like to hear others also on this. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of what Bernardo has said there, really. I guess what I would add is, you know, I mentioned earlier that I think there is a lot of power operating behind the scenes when we talk about land and property rights. And I think to a certain extent, the understandings of property have been fused with particular kind of normative and ideological projects. And that because of that, we think of certain types of property rights as being natural or rational. And then we think of other, for example, you know, legally legally defined individual property rights, you know, is probably the ep epitome of, of what we, especially in the Western world, think of as natural or rational. But then, then we kind of think of other understandings of property and relationships to land, for example, customary land as being, you know, feudal or backwards or irrational. 
And if you fall into that kind of dichotomy, you start to think that formalization is the modern and therefore the kind of the right way of doing things and that it provides a whole theory. And we see this in Timor a lot, the, the rationales and the logics behind formalization are, you know, that it improves investment, that it leads to economic development, that people get access to credit, that it reduces conflict, that it reduces poverty. But for me, when we talk about formalization, I think we need to get away from thinking of it as a technical or a neutral act and as something that we do purely for a particular kind of functional reason. And we need to acknowledge that it's a power laden act and a very political act. And that, yes, it can play a role in redefining land ownership and land access. But at the same time, it's also redefining something even deeper, which is the way that people see and understand and interact with land. And in Timor, I think I've often been struck by the disjuncture between those different understandings of land. So, you know, we have very different understandings of land underpinning kind of laws, policies and development projects when we compare that with the understandings of land at the community level. So I'm not sure that answers the question about, you know, do we need land formalization? But I guess it just poses the question of, you know, is that always the right question to be asking? Yeah, I think I will try to add up to what both of you said. Maybe I start with this, what you just said about the Western perspectives on issues, because in Mozambique, basically, there is the, the land where we talk about ownership, land is owned by the state. There is, like, land is owned by the state, period. A person who uses the land, who lives on the land, can get a duat, which is the land use right. I mean, has the duat as long as the person used the land for at least 10 years and has a witness that says, yes, the person was farming here. And I think, first of all, this is challenging to understand because often when I talk with people about it, they are like, but then people own the land, right? And no, they don't own the land. The land is owned by the state, but the land use right is granted as soon. And there is no like formalization needed in terms of registering it somewhere because the right is there, even though the person never talked to a governmental body about this or any agency. And I think this law is often kind of called like the most progressive land law in Africa, and it's celebrated, and it's a great law, I think, because it's an instrument that was basically, or is built on the customary land distribution. So I think it's really nice on the paper, but then it comes to us what Bernardo was saying. The problem is, about power maybe, or about investments and who's granting investments, because while it's a fabulous law on the paper, the implementation is deficient. And that's the problem, because according to the law, it's also the case that if someone wants to get a duat for an economic project, the person must consult the community that is affected and then has to implement several meetings, at least two, in which first the project is presented and then in a second meeting, the community can agree, disagree or um, talk about compensations, etc. But the problem is this is not happening in reality. And this, I mean, I studied uh, two cases of, of uh, social mobilization against the uh, land deals. And in both cases, it didn't happen. And as far as what I gathered from, from my uh, interviewees in Mozambique is that this is never happening. And uh, the landlords always, I mean, just uh, neglected. So the problem here, yes, I see a lot of responsibility at the governmental level because the investors might not even know that they are required to make consultations in advance. If they make an agreement with the government, how should they know that they still need to implement such? So there's a large issue of trust and 
information so also my project i think a crucial part is the lack of information and this is also the environment in which the social mobilization is taking place because there is lack of information about the project at all about details of the project and this is what is then also creating a situation of mistrust which is also i think not helpful for anybody not for the investors and also not for the government not for the local people um, so this is a very complicated situation i think I think you raise an important point that in, well, especially with investment, and we see this a lot about formalization, the talk is always about like, oh, this is for economic development. And people, at least the way I see development, development is much more than just economic development. But at the end of the day, it becomes this word that brings everyone together but at the end of the day, takes most outside because you say, oh, this will bring economic development, but it's not for the local people. The local people will be evicted. Some not even lucky ones because they will be the ones that get a job at whatever plantation, usually instead of being, they depend on a, a company for the rest of their lives. And this we see a lot in the land sector is this idea that economic development is development and we forget all the other things that also should be considered development. To have security in your life, you know what will come next, to be able to live in connection with the land where you always lived and with your community and with your family. And for me, it's really one of the biggest challenges in the land debates is to say that land plays many more roles than just economic development. Yeah, I'd really agree with Bernardo on that. And, and also just to add in is I think it's also an issue around the right to define your vision of development, right? So if we focus on land formalization in order to facilitate investments, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that all investments are, are bad at all, but if that's the prime goal of you know, land formalization in order for external parties to be able to invest in land, then we are kind of adopting a situation where the outsider entity has all of the power and the scope to define the vision for that particular location. Whereas if we focus on helping and allowing communities to develop what it is their vision is. That's a much broader approach to development. It's really interesting that in your responses, each of you mention or allude to this idea of security, which Bernardo articulated. And it seems that one of the challenges that emerges when we're talking about land formalization is this reality or what we might even call this consequence of one group security or one stakeholder security actually being contingent on another's insecurity and vice versa. And I think this really reveals the complexity of land relations. And in thinking about security and how security or how a lack of security is manufactured, I think we can segue well to the next question about boundaries specifically the role that boundaries play in land formalization. So to clarify, when I'm talking about boundaries, this includes both tangible and intangible boundaries, where tangible might refer to those physical demarcation tools like fences or signs, and intangible boundaries might include those 
that inform social structures such as identity, like citizenship or heritage. And these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. So an example that comes to mind is from Dr. Lee's keynote speech and discussion of her work in Indonesia, in which she mentions an axis of difference, which refers to these sort of exclusionary regimes in which geography and also social identity facilitate boundaries that then reinforce hierarchies between, in this context, highland and lowland communities. So I wondered if, drawing on your own work, you could speak to what some of the boundaries are that either enable land formalization or, by contrast, challenge it. I think there are different settings in which boundaries are easier to to define and others in which they are not. So, I mean, if we talk about registering a plot of land on which someone is farming, I mean, she can easily say, this is the land where I grow my crops. And the same applies to housing, for example, or might apply to housing. But there are other conflicts arising as well um, on the meaning of land. If we talk about pasture land, this is used also by the community. And it's not clearly defined, but it's an important part also of livelihoods. And as soon as the land has some boundaries, is fenced or whatsoever, it's hard to implement these activities. So I think this is an issue where where there's a problem or difficulty about how to define boundaries. And I had something else in mind, but I forgot it. So maybe someone can jump in. And if I remember it, I, I will let you know. I really like this idea about the distinction between tangible and intangible boundaries. I was thinking about this before, just before the podcast, before we started. Something that I think goes to the heart of this issue is the difference between spatial and social boundaries, and particularly when we're talking about customary land. So for many people, when we think of land boundaries, we think of a line on a map, you know, a wall, a fence, kind of a very obvious, you know, physical boundary. We think in terms of kind of black and white types of ownership, you know, I own this, but I don't own that. But I think that where and how you define a boundary depends on what you're trying to achieve. So I was starting to think today about how if you were a state-employed land surveyor and your objective is to clearly identify physical plots of land which the state wants to expropriate in order to build you know, a road or an oil refinery or a hospital, then the boundaries that are important to you are those clear physical boundaries, things like walls, edges of fields, rivers, physical even physical sacred sites, but, you know, the clearly demarcatable sacred sites, I suppose. And so what you're looking for is lines on a map that delineate between owners. But then imagine if you are a traditional leader and you're tasked with maintaining and promoting clan unity and peace and spiritual balance and long-term access to land for future generations. Well, then the boundaries that you might pay attention to look different. And so you might not need a neatly defined parcel of land with one clearly defined owner. It may, in fact, be in your interests to prioritize social relationships and alliances with a range of land users and with other clans. And instead of delimiting a hard boundary, you are much more comfortable with a fuzzy boundary. And so access to land becomes more based on belonging to the clan or family rather than being legally attached to a parcel of land. So, you know, thinking about it from different roles also helps you to realize that the concept of boundaries is quite fluid, I think. 
what Maeve is saying always reminds me this example that Lori Yoder has in her thesis. In some community in Wekusi, it's even rude to point a boundary, to say the boundary is there, because letting the boundaries be fuzzy and talking about boundaries is part of the interactions between communities. And in the moment you define the boundaries, you don't have a reason to interact and to talk. So it's a very good example that connects well with what Maeve was saying. And I think in land administration, it's a field that is, is I'm going to say something that can, can sound a bit controversial, but it's often very controlled by land surveyors. And land surveyors are there to put boundaries on a map. And quite often they are not there to let things to be fuzzy. For me, one good example of formalization without boundaries is the example that Laura was talking about Mozambique, in which you say, you lived on the land for 10 years, you have a land use right, and that's it. You don't need any paper, you need nothing. You need to live there for 10 years. And for me, in my definition, that is a form of formalization. And if applied well, it works to give people a reference and some security and some rights. Obviously then, and as you exemplify, there are issues in the implementation of this. But for countries like Mozambique, like Timor, in which is very difficult to, to have, it doesn't make sense. The discussion is not even like it will come in the future or not. Right now, it doesn't make sense to have very complex registries in areas where no one will see a state official for many years after the registration. I know that in Mozambique, for instance, there are now some projects about delimiting some land of communities. And I think at some point that makes sense when the state starts to become a threat and you need at least to put the boundary somewhere that excludes the state. But I'm always a bit careful with boundaries and thinking about boundaries because they can also be a problem. Before continuing, Laura, I just wondered if you remembered your other thought. Yes, I remembered it. It's Well, it's actually just adding up on what I said about livelihoods and different activities and components of sustaining a livelihood that is the issue of former masters, as I said, I was working on global value chains and uh, looked um, more specifically on Shia nuts and Shia nut production. And for example, you cannot, I mean, nobody does this, nobody's planting a tree of Shia nuts or is making a plantation because the trees take many, many years to, to have the nuts and the fruits to process. So people just I mean, women, because it's a female task, women just go to the trees and collect the shea nuts and then process them and then sell them eventually. But this is something you cannot do on your own land. It doesn't even make sense to delimit the land because they are growing there. And then, I mean, everybody like has her tree where she collects it. And then again, if land is reused and boundaries are made, 
it might change also the dynamics in local community in an area or in neighboring communities. So this is also something where it's not possible to, to just put boundaries. Um, I mean, this would limit, again, the livelihood portfolio of, of women. Thank you all. This idea that boundaries are not fixed, but are fluid and therefore available to be mobilized by different groups for varying purposes and interests, I think sets the tone really nicely for this next question. And some of your responses did already address this, but speaking of boundaries, especially relevant within discussions of land, and something that I found myself thinking about quite a lot during the symposium is the distinction between space and place, where space is understood as this physical setting or landscape, and place is then a site or a locale that is rendered culturally meaningful through lived experience and through the associated emergence of identity. So when we're talking about these politically charged contexts that involve colonial land legacies, I wonder, what is the role of inscription devices? That is, meaning-making tools that are used to verify one's connection to land or one's affiliation to land. What is the role of these devices in informing these distinctions between space and place? In other words, what tools are mobilized to reinforce or to resist the delimitation of land? And thinking back to your responses to that question of what is land, do you think that there's any utility in this framing between space and place in terms of talking back to that normative idea, or as Maeve mentioned, making strange the idea of land as a commodity, do you think there are possibilities for challenging normative conceptions here? I mean, I think the, the space versus place concept or any sort of concept that helps us kind of, as you say, push back against those normative ideas is really helpful. And I think, you know, there's lots of political ecology terms and anthropology terms that help us to start to push back and question some of the normative concepts around what land is, what property is. And it's linked as well to what Bernardo was saying around, you know, the land administration sector being, being quite driven by surveyors. And I would also add lawyers probably, which I can do as someone who was trained as a lawyer. <laughs> it's okay to criticize yourself. <laughs> um, but I think, you can see how a certain type of way of thinking about land and space has, has developed. And it's, very, it's a very geographical focused space. To certain extents, it's also a very legal concept of space. And I think there are other ideas out there, you know, when we, when we get down to the local level. One of the things that I was thinking about, which is moving a little bit away from maybe the customary um, inscription devices and customary ideas, but I do a lot of work on evictions. And one of the striking things for me is the types of stories, documents and discourses that people who are affected by evictions use in order to demonstrate their connection to the land and to resist demarcation in some cases, but ultimately their alienation from the land. And so one of the most common things that communities do when they're facing eviction is to get together and to write a statement or a letter you know, to the government or to the entity that is taking their land. And so as a, you know, when you come at this from a legal perspective, as a lawyer, you're always looking for the facts that fit with how the law perceives and allocates rights. So you want to see how the land was originally acquired, how it's been transferred, you know, what types of evidence exist here in order to defend this community's land rights. 
but in these letters, you see these amazingly different logics, right? So people recant long lists of names of long deceased ancestors, partly because this is what you do in customary rituals, right? So authority over the land comes from being able to trace your lineage back to those who first settled the land. So this is an act or a discourse that makes sense in a customary setting. People often recount their good deeds and their, their own personal legitimacy. So for example, in Timor, you see a lot of people relying on their role in the resistance during the Indonesian era, uh, maybe their role in the church, um, their, their personal connections to particular leaders. And again, I think this is partly because customarily your personal relationship and status is very important in how you negotiate access to land. And then finally, I think people often show deference and allegiance to the state or to the entity who is coming to take away their land. You know, they say things like, we recognize that the state ultimately owns all the land, but we ask that you consider our rights. And this discursive tactic is often used even in a context where the community has really, really strong rights to the land in question, which from the community's point of view, I think they're trying to show respect to an external group or entity, particularly an entity which they have a long-term relationship with, like the state. But of course, from a legal perspective, that's incredibly frustrating because essentially they're verbal, verbally giving away their rights, right? They're recognizing another entity as having rights in contradiction to their own. So I think what all of these discursive tactics reflect is the overwhelming importance of relationships in that local understanding of what land is and the social connection that exists in customary land relations. And I think of those as inscription devices. Yeah, what we have just described is a lot of what I also observed in, in during my fieldwork and in my research because Okay, there were different levels of claim making. So maybe just to explain this a bit better and put it into context, I look at two cases of social mobilization against large investment projects and the role of multi-level governance, so governance instruments on the transnational, regional, domestic, and also local level. But I mean, this is at least domestic and traditional is somehow the same as I, I already told in the Mozambican case, but it depends on who is making the claims and who is framing it. But when I talk to local communities or local people that were affected by a project, they were making claims very similar to what you just described. So they said, okay, in this land, my parents lived here and my, my grandparents lived here, my great grandparents, etc. So it's very similar, but then um, They, they also, I checked again some of the interviews where they find some references to colonialism and I found some to the colonial period. And this is where those women are directly affected by investment. They told me that they'd cultivated their farm basically on that land, even in colonial times, uh, even though it was colonial land. And then in 75, when Mozambique got independence, they said the land was nationalized for the Mozambicans. But they always used the same farm from colonial land to Mozambican land uh, up, up until today. And then again made the reference to their ancestors. So that was very similar to what you just described. And then when I looked also at very similar documents, such as open letters or petitions, announcements of demonstrations, there were a lot of references to legal instruments. So it really depended on who was making the claims, I would say. And as soon as it reached a level of, I don't know, regionally active, but also domestic NGOs, they, they started using more 
not always binding, but legal instruments such as regulations, voluntary guidelines, or what was also used was the Indigenous Peoples Declaration, etc. So a lot of instruments that are making references to land. Maybe I can add a very lawyerish answer to this. Well, I think, and trying not to be too normative, but I think this debate goes back, I think, to two things. The first one is to acknowledge that land for a lot of people is more than a commodity, is not just a commodity, is not a fungible asset that you can always replace. And acknowledging this and acknowledging this in law, I find it quite important. Sometimes it can be abstract and in places like Timor or Mozambique, it's even more difficult to have an argument, a legal argument about this. But I think it's really important to give some legal value to this more personal value of land. I think in Timor, for instance, this is in the expropriation law. At the time, we managed to put a clause there saying like the state needs to give special value to the social. I, I can't remember exactly the wording, but it's the social and cultural value that the land will have to people. And if you put that in practice, it does something that we already spoke, that is to if that was applied properly, it would limit a lot what the states do to dispossess people and to cause them trouble. So going back again to that debate about development, if you acknowledge that development is also to respect these connections to land and other values of land for people, you start to question this idea that land is fungible, that you can always displace people. And this idea of land as a commodity only can be challenged. I really like that you all give examples of how maybe what we can call placemaking is constant. This perpetual sort of state of becoming and this way of thinking lends itself really well to this next question about thinking with assemblages. So to provide some context for our listeners, in preparing for this discussion, we circulated two papers written by Dr. Tanya Murray Lee, who again is the keynote speaker for the symposium around which this podcast series is based. And both of these papers describe the application of assemblage thinking as a framework for investigating the nuances of these very broad topics involving land and involving colonial legacies. So my question for each of you is how you might use this framework to consider your work, or are there other theoretical approaches that you find useful in your research? And Maeve, if you'd like to start. Sure. I think I have an unfair advantage here because assemblage thinking is the kind of core theoretical framing that I used for my PhD. But actually, I have to confess that I haven't looked at my PhD since I submitted it a year and a half ago. I just kind of put it in a cupboard and walked away. So I had to go back today and read my theory chapter and, and remind myself of exactly what I thought assemblage thinking was. <laughs> so for me, assemblage thinking is very helpful for a number of different reasons. I think the first reason is that instead of looking for the essence or the end point of a thing, 
assemblage thinking asks us to accept that things are always in flux and, and things are always, you know, as you said, becoming. And it's helpful for this question of what is land that you asked us at the very start, I think, of the podcast, which is if you accept that land is always changing and always emerging and always becoming something new and always being caught up into new processes, then you actually can accept very easily that land is both this complicated spiritual entity and at the same time it is a commodity and at the same time it is private property and at the same time it can be state land because it is actually the processes and the ways in which it is assembled and connect to other things and discourses and actors that makes it into new things and so what I like about that is that that forces us to ask how questions so how does that happen what who is involved in making that happen for what reasons and I find that a a very nuanced way of talking about power and how power acts on land and people another thing that I like about assemblage thinking is that it forces us to question the spatiality and temporality of the things that we're studying so one example I use for this is human rights law talks about very, very clear and specific rights that exist before, during and after evictions. So, you know, a lot of people when they're when they're working on evictions cases will will talk about the community's rights before, during and after. Human rights law around evictions is really complicated. And so it's actually very, very helpful to be able to break it down into this really clear time based delineation. But of course, if you actually look at the reality Evictions aren't these really concrete temporal, like they don't fit into that very simple kind of temporal delineation. So evictions aren't really final acts. They don't end at a particular time. They're these kind of contingent processes that keep going. They don't end with the removal of the evicted people from the site. They keep going and are, you know, there's these long, long-term impacts, potentially even generational impacts. They also don't happen in particular places. You know, we think of the eviction site as the physical location where people used to live and the physical location that they are removed from. But actually, evictions take place in laws and policies when people draft particular clauses that will exclude certain types of rights. They take place on Facebook when people promote or defend their rights or undermine certain types of rights or defend the eviction. And so I like assemblage thinking because it helps you to kind of think in this. um, I'm using hand gestures, which is not helpful in a podcast, is it? (laughs) It helps you to think in this broad way about all the ways in which a particular concept is is put together i think my answer to your question and trying to touch a bit on what you call assemblage thinking is i think is this debate that you hear from lawyers but also land surveyors and other people working in the land sector say no that we are the technicians we are doing only the technical side of things And my answer to that is all technical sides, all technicalities bring political decisions and bring political views. And everyone ends up bringing their own political views in one way or another to land administration. And by not acknowledging that political side of all kinds of actions and inactions too, we disempower and we take away the political debates that should happen. The example that Maeve was talking about an eviction, 
if you say, look, I'm a technician, and I can understand, of course, a civil servant will say that it's only normal. But you say, oh, I, I'm only applying the law. Yes, but the law brings a political decision and a political value and sees some people's rights in a certain way. And not acknowledging that political side of land administration, I think it's usually quite problematic. And it's really important to acknowledge it. And without being very clear about the political content of all kinds of technical decisions, it's very difficult to change land administration. Well, yeah, I agree with what you just said both. And if I project this approach now on my, my research project, I think, I mean, it could be definitely interesting to apply assemblage theory. Also, as I look on this multi-level governance of land, I mean, I could go through each I mean, regulation or right, and, and um, look how land is described there. And I think it's different, whether it's guidelines on land investment, whether it's the Mozambican land law, or maybe the declaration of the rights of indigenous peoples. It's definitely different. So that could be interesting. And then I could also look in my interviews uh, or I should, well, if I would have used this approach, I guess the interviews would have been a bit different or the questions, but then how investors or government officials, activists, farmers, business experts, how they describe land and how they define land. So I think, yes, and this could then be an assemblage, if, if I can call it like this, of, of what land is in this context. Yeah, I think this is what I was thinking of when reading what Tanya Lee describes as assemblage. And I think especially the second part where I just said um, how actors um, assess meaning to land is very similar to what Tanya Lee writes in her paper, What is Land? And I'm not sure if I should also talk more about the approach or the perspective I'm taking in my research project. Okay, yeah, you're nodding. So <laughs> I will, I will uh, proceed um, because... As I said, I'm studying the social mobilization. So my research is located in the field of political sociology. And in order to study the social mobilization, I'm referring to different models of such. And I mean, there is mainly boomerang effect of kick and seeking in which domestic movements face blockages. So they use their transnational networks in order to create pressure on their government and to surpass these blockages. And I then did like a collection of several models of transnational social mobilization because this is a crucial element in my research, the transnational nature. And there are several other models that have like mainly refer to the boomerang effect or the boomerang model, but look on different issues such as the pathways of influence. For Zayek, she worked on the labor movements, but she described how social movements take influence and she defined four different pathways. And there are other approaches as well. And in all of those, what I found out or what I kind of read from this is that besides this transnational element, what is extremely important and crucial is the exchange of information. But it's important to exchange information. But where does this information come from? This is actually also where I want to make my contribution to because As we talked about this before, in the field of investments in land, there's often a lack of information about intentions of an investment, about a project, plans, etc. So I look at the different facet of 
information. So how is information generated in the first place? And yeah, the models of translational social mobilization are the perspective that I'm taking in my research. Excellent. It's not only interesting, but also very useful, I think, to hear about the frameworks that researchers use when approaching the social problem or research context that they seek to understand. So thank you all for sharing and elaborating those frameworks. So I think that it's important to note, and this is something that you've all highlighted throughout our conversation, that a lot of the work that we do in social science research is not only about coming up with answers, but about coming up with questions and asking the right questions. So with this in mind, are there any questions that you think we need to be asking when we're talking about land formalization? This is one question that uh, I wrote a little bit about it. And it's a question that sometimes I ask, sometimes I wanted to ask, but I, I need to shut up. But when I hear people talking about land formalization, quite often I like to ask, which problem do you want to solve? What is the social problem that you want to solve? And I give you an example. Go to any land conference, especially, not only, but especially with state officials. And the thing that you'll hear is the problem in my country is that only 10% of the land was ever registered. I said, that's not a social problem. If you take that as the problem that moves you, Obviously, the, the next step is we need to register more. You are not thinking, how am I going to register what? What are the consequences? Your problem is there's only 10% of land registered. If instead of saying that, you say, well, the problem of my country is that a lot of people do not have secure access to land and land is not equally distributed then the tools and your thought process is completely different because then land registration might be the solution, might be the problem actually. So your objective and what you want to do is very different. So in a way, this is the question that I would like to see asked more is what social problem are you trying to solve? And then of course, like come up with a social problem, not with with something that is a means for something and not a real social problem like land is not registered yeah absolutely i think myself and bernardo must uh, spend too much time working together because he's just proposed the answer to what my question was <laughs> which was kind of what i was thinking about was how do we get people who work in the land formalization sector to just step back and take a moment and ask themselves why do i need to do this and I think Bernardo's question that he wants to ask of people is the first step, perhaps, in that process, which is, you know, what is the problem you're trying to address? You know, are you trying to reduce poverty? Are you trying to ensure that communities don't get evicted? Are you trying to protect customary land? Are you trying to facilitate big business to expropriate land as fast as possible from communities? And it's only once you start, like, being quite specific on those issues that you start to then question whether and what types of formalization make sense in what context. I try to also think about questions kind of as a result from this discussion we just had. And this is maybe I have two more or less, and um, I find it extremely hard to answer them. But 
And we talked a lot about this discursive meaning of land. So how is it possible to create, if we have legal instruments dealing with land, how is it possible to catch kind of this discursive meaning of land in instruments without leaving important issues out? And then, of course, it's the question, what is all that is important here? But how can we formalize the discursive meaning of land if I mean, or not formalized, but maybe how to create instruments that respect this discursive meaning. And I think this is really hard. And another issue we talked about was development. Like what is development and how should development look like? So, I mean, what is the kind of development or model of development that also local communities want? Because I find it always very difficult. I mean, they must be included. I, I, I guess we all agree on that. If we think about what kind of development is wanted, this is also very difficult yeah, to answer. But this is an open question that I, I take away also from this discussion. Thank you. Those are great questions and, and answers that I'm sure our listeners will enjoy mulling over as well. In closing, I'd like to open the floor to you all to share any final thoughts. Is there anything that you feel that listeners should consider when seeking to understand or when asking questions about land formalization or land relations more broadly? I maybe have kind of a disclaimer that is, while being very critical on government, it's also important to know that land administration, it's very, very difficult. And if you really want to understand it and be part of the solution, it's also important to see the other side and understand also the issues that state officials experience and why they do things the way they do. In my research, I have a couple of examples, but one that I find interesting and kind of gives you a bit of a picture of what I'm saying is evictions in Timor are very harsh evictions. And one of the things that was quite criticized is they show up one day without, there are a lot of notifications, we will evict you in 30 days, nothing happens, nothing happens. And one day the bulldozers are there to remove people at 4 or 5 a.m. And this is very harsh, like there is no doubt about it. But then when you ask state officials, why do you show up with no warning at 4 or 5 a.m.? The answer is, well, if we show up Later, people are not at home, so they cannot remove things from their house. And if we tell them when we are coming, they will be waiting for us with stones and machetes and guns, and we are afraid. And this is the kind of thing, once you hear that side, it, it doesn't make it better, but at least you understand what is their rationale to do this kind of thing. And I think quite often research kind of misses this side of looking to the other side of things and asking people why they do things the way they do and understand a bit more the complexity and the dilemmas of land administration that is not easy. I think that's really interesting what Bernardo just said there and actually just to loop back to assemblage thinking. I think this is one of the things that assemblage thinking is really helpful in because one of the ideas is 
that we shouldn't try to understand. So, so one of the problems that I had in the research work that I do is, like Laura, I was looking at moments of social resistance and of resistance to particular evictions and land grabs. And I found myself for a long time in the PhD really struggling with, you know, I was writing essentially a story that was about the powerful state coming and taking the land from the vulnerable community who were opposing. But actually, that was not the truth of the story. And I found a lot of the theoretical frameworks, they had this kind of binary idea of power as power versus resistance, you know, and that there are this kind of dichotomy. And as Bernardo has really aptly described, and I think Laura mentioned earlier, you know, that this is not really what it looks like in, in reality. And so assemblage thinking allows you to kind of conceive of and theorize resistance without essentializing this interaction between powerful people on one side and maybe vulnerable community on another side. And it also asks us to kind of pay attention to these small ways in which even though one powerful entity might end up winning a particular case, the ways in which that it's never a complete win. And, and I think this just to also link back to the colonial, you know, I know a lot of what the, the Luso land legacies we've been looking at is kind of colonial land issues. And I think in Timor, this is a good example. So the colonial state machinery made, you know, many attempts to kind of what I would call like reassemble land into a new thing with its core objective being kind of exerting state control over territory, getting taxes and, and you know, generating exports. and these forces kind of worked to reassemble what was customary land into state territory, private property, and state land. And yet, despite all of that, there is a lot of evidence, and Susanna Barnes, Daniel Fitzpatrick, and Andrew McWilliams' amazing work kind of speaks to this, that actually Rilisam in Timor, or customary land in Timor, is incredibly resilient and is still very, very strong. And so assemblage thinking kind of helps us to ask, well, how is it possible that in the face of such strong forces during the colonial period, customary land remained so resilient? And so you don't want to kind of over-dramatize, you don't want to um, not pay enough attention to the power of the colonial state, and you don't want to romanticize the customary land. And so I think Assemblage Thinking helps you to kind of have this nuanced examination of, of exactly what's playing out. And I think that speaks also to what Bernard is talking about is understanding the nuances and the positions of all the various actors involved. It's not, you know, not all state actors think in one particular way. There are many state actors that I speak with in Timor who have huge empathy for the communities and are really struggling themselves with some of the, the concepts, you know, and some of the things that are happening in evictions. So it's important to pay attention to that, I think. I think I will be short with my final words because I... Yeah, I, I agree with what both of you just said. And I think the whole issue of land registration or I mean, land formalization or however we want to call it is extremely complex. It has so many layers. And I also totally agree that it's not like the good and the bad. The issue of land registration, but also the actors within there, it's not like black and white. There are so many different shades in between. Thank you for listening to the Lusoscapes podcast. You can learn more about the Lusophone Land Legacies Research Group and their work at lusolandlegacies.org. Special thanks to co-producer Dr. Susanna Barnes and to research assistant Jessica Jack. Once again, I'm your host, Michelle Gowan.
Thank you for listening.